Welcome to the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated by Dr. John Owen. We will be continuing to read from page 146 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourselves to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now, to SWRB's reading of the doctrine of justification by faith, through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come unto the Father but by Him. John 14, verse 6. Secondly, we may consider the arguments whence it is evident that He neither was nor could be a surety unto us for God, but was so for us unto God. For, number one, inguas or inguetes, a surety, is one that undertakes for another, wherein he is defective, really, or in reputation. Whatever that undertaking be, whether in words of promise, or in depositing of real security in the hands of an arbitrator, or by any other personal engagement of life and body, it respects the defect of the person for whom anyone becomes a surety. Such a one is sponsor, or, non-English word, in all good authors in common use of speech. And if any one be of absolute credit himself, and of a reputation every way unquestionable, there is no need of a surety unless in case of mortality. The words of a surety in the behalf of another whose ability or reputation is dubious, are non-English words. And when inguas is taken adjectively, as sometimes it signifies non-English words, liable to payments for others that are non-solvent. Number two, God can, therefore, have no surety properly, because there can be no imagination of any defect on His part. There may be, indeed, a question whether any word or promise be a word or promise of God. To assure us hereof, it is not a work of a surety, but only any one or any means that may give evidence that so it is, that is, of a witness. But upon a supposition that what is proposed is his word or promise, there can be no imagination or fear of any defect on his part, so, as that there should be any need of a surety for the performance of it. 
He does, therefore, make use of witnesses to confirm His word, that is, to testify that such promises He has made, and so He will do. So the Lord Christ was His witness. Isaiah 43, verse 10, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. But they were not all His sureties. So He affirms that He came into the world to bear witness unto the truth. John chapter 18, verse 37. That is, the truth of the promises of God. For he is the minister of the circumcision for the truth of the promises of God unto the fathers. Romans 15, verse 8. But a surety for God, properly so called, he is not, nor could be. The distance and difference is wide enough between a witness and a surety. For surety must be of more ability or more credit and reputation than he or those for whom he is a surety. Or there is no need of his surety ship. Or at least he must add unto their credit and make it better than without him. This none can be for God. No, not the Lord Christ himself who in his whole work was the servant of the Father. And the Apostle does not use this word in a general, improper sense for anyone that by any means gives assurance of any other thing. For so he had ascribed nothing peculiar unto Christ. For in such a sense, all the prophets and apostles were sureties for God, and many of them confirmed the truth of his word and promises with the laying down of their lives. But such a surety he intends as undertakes to do that for others which they cannot do for themselves or at least are not reputed to be able to do what is required of them number three the apostle had before at large declared who and what was god's surety in this manner of the covenant and how impossible it was that he should have any other and this was himself alone interposing himself by his oath. For in this cause, quote, because he could swear by none greater, he swear by himself. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Wherefore, if God would give any other surety besides himself, it must be one greater than he. This being every way impossible, he swears by himself only. Many ways, he may and does use for the declaring and testifying of his truth unto us, that we may know and believe it is to be his word. And so the Lord Christ, in his ministry, was the principal witness of the truth of God. But other surety than himself, he can have none. And therefore, number four, when he would have us in this matter not only come unto the full assurance of faith concerning his promises, but also to have strong consolation therein, he resolves it wholly into the immutability of his counsel, as declared by his promise and oath. Chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. So that neither is God capable of having any surety properly so called, neither do we stand in need of any on his part for the confirmation of our faith in the highest degree. Number five, we, on all accounts, stand in need of a surety for us, or on our behalf. Neither, without the interposition of such a surety, could any covenant between God and us be firm and stable, 
or an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. In the first covenant made with Adam, there was no surety, but God and men were the immediate covenanters. And although we were then in a state and condition able to perform and answer all the terms of the covenant, yet was it broken and disannulled. If this came to pass by the failure of the promise of God, it was necessary that on the making of a new covenant, he should have a surety to undertake for him, that the covenant might be stable and everlasting. But this is false and blasphemous to imagine. It was man alone who failed and broke that covenant. Wherefore, it was necessary that upon the making of a new covenant, and that with a design and purpose that it should never be disannulled, as the former was, we should have a surety and undertaker for us. For if that first covenant was not firm and stable, because there was no surety to undertake for us, notwithstanding all that ability which we had to answer the terms of it, how much less can any other be so, now that our natures are become depraved and sinful? Wherefore, we alone are capable of a surety, properly so called, for us. We alone stood in need of him, and without him the covenant could not be firm and inviolate on our part. The surety, therefore, of this covenant is so with God for us. Number six. It is the priesthood of Christ that the apostle treats of in this place, and that alone. Wherefore, he is a surety as he is a priest, and in the discharge of that office, and therefore is so with God on our behalf. This, Slechtingus observes, and is aware what will ensue against his pretensions which he endeavors to obviate. Non-English words. Answer number one. It may indeed seem strange unto anyone who imagines Christ to be a surety, as he does, why the apostle should so call him, and so introduce him, and the description of his priestly office, as that which belongs thereunto. But grant, what is the proper work and duty of a surety, and who the Lord Jesus was a surety for? And it is evident that nothing more proper or pertinent could be mentioned by him when he was in the declaration of that office. Answer number two. He confesses that by his exposition of his suretyship of Christ, as making him a surety for God, he contradicts the nature and only notion of a surety among men. For such a one, he acknowledges, does nothing but in the defect and inability of them for whom he is engaged and does undertake. He is to pay that which they owe, and to do what is to be done by them, which they cannot perform. And if this be not the notion of a surety in this place, the apostle makes use of a word nowhere else used in the whole of Scripture to teach us that which it does never signify among men, which is improbable and absurd. For the sole reason why he did make use of it was that from the nature and notion of it amongst men in other cases, we may understand the signification of it, what he intends by it, and what under the name he ascribes unto the Lord Jesus. Answer number three. He has no way to solve the apostles' mention of Christ being a surety in the description of his priestly office, 
but by overthrowing the nature of that office also. For to confirm this absurd notion that Christ as a priest was a surety for God, he would have us believe that the priesthood of Christ consists in his making effectual unto us the promises of God, or his effectual communicating of the good things promised unto us. The falsehood of which notion, really destructive of the priesthood of Christ, I have elsewhere at large detected and confuted. Wherefore, seeing the Lord Christ is a surety of the covenant as a priest, and all the sacerdotal actings of Christ have God for their immediate object, and are performed with him on our behalf, he was a surety for us also. A surety, not English words, for us. The Lord Christ was, by his voluntary undertaking, out of his rich grace and love, to do, answer, and perform all that is required on our part, that we may enjoy the benefits of the covenant, the grace and glory prepared, proposed, and promised in it, in the way and manner determined on by divine wisdom. And this may be reduced unto two heads. First, his answering for our transgressions against the first covenant. Secondly, his purchase and procurement of the grace of the new, which was made a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come on us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. Parenthesis number 1. He undertook as the surety of the covenant to answer for all the sins of those who are to be and are made partakers of the benefits of it. That is, to undergo the punishment due unto their sins, to make atonement for them by offering himself a propitiatory sacrifice for the expiation of their sins, redeeming them by the price of his blood, from their state of misery and bondage under the law and the curse of it. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 6 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 20 verse 28. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 and 26. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 to 8. Romans chapter 8 verses 2 and 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 19 to 21. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. And this was absolutely necessary that the grace and glory prepared in the covenant might be communicated unto us. Without this undertaking of His and performance of it, the righteousness and faithfulness of God would not permit that sinners, such as had apostatized from him, despised his authority and rebelled against him, falling thereby under the sentence and curse of the law, should again be received into his favor and made partakers of the grace and glory. This, therefore, the Lord Christ took upon himself as the surety of the covenant. Parentheses number two that those who were to be taken into this covenant should receive grace, enabling them to comply with the terms of it, fulfill its conditions, and yield the obedience which God required therein. For, by the ordination of God, he was to procure, and did merit and procure for them the Holy Spirit, and all needful supplies of grace, to make them new creatures, and enable them to yield obedience unto God from a new principle of spiritual life, 
and that faithfully unto the end. So was he the surety of this better testament. But all things belonging hereunto will be handled at large in the place from whence, as I said, these are taken, as suitable unto their present occasion. But some have other notions of these things, for they say that Christ, by his death and his obedience therein, whereby he offered himself a sacrifice of sweet-smelling savor unto God, procured for us the new covenant. Quote, All that we have by the death of Christ is that whereunto we owe the covenant of grace. For herein he did and suffered what God required and freely appointed him to do and suffer. Not that the justice of God required any such thing, which respect unto their sins for whom he died, and in whose stead, or to bestead whom he suffered, but what, by a free constitution of divine wisdom and sovereignty, was appointed unto him. Hereon, God was pleased to remit the terms of the old covenant, and to enter into a new covenant with mankind, upon terms suited unto our reason, possible unto our abilities, and every way advantageous unto us. For these terms are faith and sincere obedience, or such an assent unto the truth of divine revelation effectual in obedience unto the will of God contained in them, upon the encouragement given whereunto in the promise of eternal life or future reward made therein. On the performance of these conditions, our justification, adoption, and future glory do depend. For they are that righteousness before God whereon He pardons our sins and accepts our persons as if we were perfectly righteous. And quote. Wherefore, by this procuring the new covenant for us, which they ascribe unto the death of Christ, they intend the abrogation of the old covenant, or of the law, or at least such a derogation from it, that it shall no more oblige us either unto sinless obedience or punishment, nor require a perfect righteousness unto our justification before God. And the constitution of a new law of obedience, accommodated unto our present state and condition, on whose observance all the promises of the gospel do depend. Others say that in the death of Christ there was a real satisfaction made unto God, not to the law, or unto God according to what the law required, but unto God absolutely. That is, he did what God was well pleased and satisfied with all, without any respect unto his justice or the curse of the law. And they add that hereon the whole righteousness of Christ is imputed unto us, so far as that we are made partakers of the benefits thereof. And, moreover, that the way of the communication of them unto us is by the new covenant, which by his death the Lord Christ procured. For the conditions of this covenant are established in the covenant itself, whereon God will bestow all the benefits and effects of it upon us, which are faith and obedience. Wherefore, what the Lord Christ has done for us is thus far accepted as our legal righteousness, as that God upon our faith and obedience with respect thereunto does release and pardon all our sins of omission and commission. Upon this pardon, there is no need of any positive, perfect righteousness unto our justification or salvation, but our own personal righteousness is accepted with God in the room of it. 
by virtue of the new covenant which Christ has procured. So is the doctrine hereof stated by Corselius and those that join with him or follow him. Sundry things there are in these opinions that deserve an examination, and they will most, if not all of them, occur unto us in our progress. That which alone we have occasion to inquire into, with respect unto what we have discourse concerning the Lord Christ as surety of the covenant, and which is the foundation of all that is asserted in them, is that Christ, by his death, procured the new covenant for us, which, as one says, is all that we have thereby, which, if it should prove otherwise, we are not beholding unto it for anything at all. But these things must be examined, and, parentheses number one, the terms of procuring the new covenant are ambiguous. It is not as yet that I know of, by any declared how the Lord Christ did procure it, whether he did so by his satisfaction and obedience as the meritorious cause of it, or by what other kind of causality. Unless this be stated, we are altogether uncertain what relation of the new covenant unto the death of Christ is intended, and to say that thereunto we owe the new covenant does not mend the matter, but rather render the terms more ambiguous. Neither is it declared whether the constitution of the covenant or the communication of the benefits of it is intended. It is yet no less general that God was so well pleased with what Christ did, as that hereon he made and entered into a new covenant with mankind. This they may grant, who yet deny the whole satisfaction and merit of Christ. If they mean that the Lord Christ, by his obedience and suffering, did meritoriously procure the making and establishing of the new covenant, which was all that he so procured, and the entire effect of his death, what they say may be understood. But, the whole nature of the mediation of Christ is overthrown thereby. Parenthesis number two. This opinion is liable unto a great prejudice, in that, whereas it is in such a fundamental article of our religion, and about that wherein the eternal welfare of the church is so nearly concerned, there is no mention made of it in Scripture. For is it not strange, if this be, as some speak, the sole effect of the death of Christ, whereas sundry other things are frequently in the Scripture ascribed unto it as the effects and fruits thereof, that this which is only so should be nowhere mentioned, neither in express words, nor such as will allow of this sense by any just or lawful consequence, our redemption, pardon of sins, the renovation of our natures, our sanctification, justification, peace with God, eternal life, are all jointly and severally assigned thereunto in places almost without number. But it is nowhere said in the scripture that Christ by his death merited, procured, obtained the new covenant or that God should enter into a new covenant with mankind. Yea, as we shall see, that which is contrary unto it, and inconsistent with it, is frequently asserted. Parentheses number three. To clear the truth herein, we must consider the several notions and causes of the new covenant, with the true and real respect of the death of Christ thereunto, 
and it is variously represented unto us. Brackets number one. In the designation and preparation of its terms and benefits in the counsel of God. And this, although it have the nature of an eternal decree, yet it is not the same with the decree of election, as some suppose. For that properly respects the subjects or persons for whom grace and glory are prepared. This, the preparation of that grace and glory as to the way and manner of their communication. Some learned men do judge that this counsel and purpose of the will of God to give grace and glory in and by Jesus Christ unto the elect in the way and by the means by him prepared is formally the covenant of grace or at least that the substance of the covenant is comprised therein. But it is certain that more is required to complete the whole nature of a covenant. Nor is this purpose or counsel of God called the covenant in the scripture, but it is only proposed as the spring and fountain of it. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 12. Unto the full exemplification of the covenant of grace, there is required the declaration of this counsel of God's will, accompanied with the means and powers of its accomplishment, and the prescription of the way whereby we are so to be interested in it and made partakers of the benefits of it. But in the inquiry after the procuring cause of the new covenant, it is the first thing that ought to come under consideration. For nothing can be the procuring cause of the covenant, which is not so of this spring and fountain of it, of this idea of it in the mind of God, of the preparation of its terms and benefits. But this is nowhere in the scripture affirmed to be the effect of the death or mediation of Christ. And to ascribe it thereunto is to overthrow the whole freedom of eternal grace and love. Neither can anything that is absolutely eternal, as is this decree and counsel of God, be the effect of or procured by anything that is external and temporal. Brackets number two. It may be considered with respect unto the federal transactions between the Father and the Son concerning the accomplishment of this counsel of His will. What these were, wherein they did consist, I have declared at large. Ex Ersitat, Volume 2. Footnote. See Exercite 28 in the preliminary dissertations to the exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. And footnote. Neither do I call this the covenant of grace absolutely, nor is it so called in the scripture. But yet, some will not distinguish between the covenant of the mediator and the covenant of grace, because the promises of the covenant absolutely are said to be made to Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. And he is the proton dektikon, or first subject of all the grace of it. But in the covenant of the mediator, Christ stands alone for himself and undertakes for himself alone and not as a representative of the church. But this he is in the covenant of grace. But this is that wherein it had its designed establishment as unto all the ways, means, and ends of its accomplishment and all things are so disposed as that it might be effectual unto the eternal glory of the wisdom of grace, righteousness, and power of God. Wherefore, the covenant of grace could not be procured by any means or cause 
but that which was the cause of this covenant of the mediator, or of God the Father with the Son, as undertaking the work of mediation. And, as this is nowhere ascribed unto the death of Christ in the Scripture, so to assert it is contrary unto all spiritual reason and understanding. Who can conceive that Christ by his death should procure the agreement between God and him that he should die? This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc., that SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends. But we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you.